Hey everybody, it's Michael here, and you're listening to the Good Eater Radio Show. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Good E-Reader Radio Show. My name is Michael, and of course I'm joined today by Digital Book World's own Jeremy Greenfield. Jeremy, how are you? Good, Michael. How are you? Not too bad. So, I guess there's been a ton of news about the Apple trial, uh, the Justice Department. And you, I know that you've been following that really closely, so let me tell me and... Uh, sorry... I'm just going Hey everybody, welcome back to the Goody Reader Radio Show. My name is Michael and I'm joined today by Digital Book World's Jeremy Greenfield. How are you? Good. How are you, Michael? Not too bad. So the first thing I want to talk about is the whole Justice Department deal with Apple and it's been going on extensively for a number of weeks. I know that you've been tracking that fairly closely. So uh what are your views about everything that's transpired so far? Well, it's a really interesting case, obviously, uh, and it has it could have fairly wide-reaching ramifications. Uh, should Apple be found guilty, um, and the judge applies the recommended, you know, remedy, as the Department of Justice calls it, uh, Apple executives could have to go through antitrust training. Apple uh, might have a antitrust liaison who makes sure that Apple's following you know, all the rules that are set out. And of course, uh, there would be no agency pricing from Apple for eBooks for two years and no most favored nation uh, clauses in, in the contracts uh, that Apple signs for five years. And you know, I think that it's important to understand that, that for the Department of Justice and for the antitrust uh, regulators, the, the priority here is to you know, fix whatever harm has been done and to take away any advantages that might have been gained um, by the parties that, that did the harm. Um, you know, should Apple be found innocent? Um, you know, I haven't actually even really thought through all of the, the possible market ramifications, but you know, all of the publishers have already settled with the Department of Justice, so you know, the retailers are, are, they have the power to discount, and they're, they're actively doing so across a lot of books, although a lot less right now than they were a couple months ago. So I know Apple has said that if they lose the trial, it's going to be bad for business. How exactly do you see if Apple loses it being bad for business or being well, bad for ebooks in general? Well, I think that Apple's argument would be that, you know, they that, that Apple's entrance into the market actually helped create a more diverse marketplace and gave consumers more choices. I mean, if you remember back in 2010, you know, Amazon was really the entire ebook market in the US if if not most of it, and there were no other players. What Apple is contending is that by introducing this sort of more leveled playing field, um, for pricing, it allowed Apple and Barnes and Noble, especially, 
to start competing with Amazon, um, you know, and not having to worry that they were all their prices were going to be undercut by Amazon, which you know famously has very low prices. So I think one of Apple's arguments will be that you know if we're unable to you know get creative in the way that we attack the market like this, if we're if our hands are tied, you know Amazon's just going to go back to being the dominant market player, and uh, people are going to have you know fewer and fewer choices. And what will eventually happen is Amazon will have such a strong market position, it will then exploit that position uh, to hurt you know consumers or or possibly other companies. And that, that's my guess as to what the argument would be. So what do you think? Well, from what I understand is that if Apple loses this case, it's not a criminal investigation. So it's not like Apple will have to pay a fine to the Justice Department. But from my understanding is that if Apple loses this case, it's going to open the doors for litigation. So you're going to have people, if Apple's found guilty, you're going to have, for the next few years, people taking Apple to court individually lawyers and firms taking them to court and actually there's a chance that Apple will have to pay a series of damages or um, you know a monetary uh, they'll have to pay money you know basically in order for this to all go away do you see that happening if Apple loses well one of the interesting things here is that the way that Apple proposed to sell ebooks is the same way that it sells everything else uh, if you buy an app, that's that's an agency pricing scheme. If you buy, um, you know, a, a song off of iTunes, that's a, that's an agency pricing scheme. So, um, you know, I would say that you might think that some of those other kinds of models and businesses could could come under scrutiny from other players. Although, um, I, I actually don't think that that will happen. But I'm not an expert in this particular aspect of the case. Same here. I mean, my my thoughts is overall is that. I guess Apple, their main argument is that they they didn't know that all of these agency, you know, all the big publishers were meeting with each other outside of Apple's negotiations. And I guess that's the main point that uh, the Apple trial lawyer was trying to make was that we're, we weren't the ringmaster. You know, we were encouraging people to, um, you know, to increase the ebook prices or to at least create a level playing field. So most bookstores would be able to charge the same amount for a book to create a level playing field. But it wasn't Apple's fault that these publishers were colluding with each other outside of Apple's direct negotiations. And so their argument is, well, you know, what they do in their own time, we can't be held accountable for. This is their own uh, thing. My take on it is that this is like how businesses and, and new businesses models get formed. It's, it's people talking with each other. It's like, you know, iron out logistics on the side before anything real actually happens. And so if Apple loses, this might stifle innovation or at least how companies approach new market segments because they may feel that if we start talking to each other and start sharing technology or start, um, you know, talking between each other to open up a new market, it may come bite us in the ass because it may, in effect, open up like a wide legal investigation and basically nobody really wants that. Yeah, and that, that's one interesting way of looking at it. But, you know, to me, this whole saga isn't really 
hasn't really been as much about Apple and Amazon and the publishers and the DOJ as it's kind of been about Barnes and Noble. You know, Barnes and Noble is not really involved in the case. One of its executives, Teresa Horner, you know, gave testimony about how Barnes and Noble was also investigating this agency model um, around the same time as Apple. Um, but I feel like, and just looking at some of the results that Barnes and Noble has shown over the past, uh, you know, six months, the way that it's kind of slipped in the marketplace. You know, having talked to many publishers, it looks like Barnes and Noble is losing market share. Um, and it hasn't been able to expand internationally, or at least hasn't announced anything you know, relevant uh, like, it, like it was supposed to when it did the joint venture with Microsoft last year. Um, when the agency pricing went away for a lot of these popular books, you know, Barnes and & Noble and, and the others had to start competing on price with Amazon, or at least they believed they had to. And I think that that you know, might be one of the, a mortal wound uh, for Nook. I mean, it looks like the Nook business is just not doing very well. Um, and 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 this way this this area of the business the content was supposed to be the profitable part of it you know it was the devices they basically broke even on they weren't very profitable but the content when someone buys an ebook and if they bought a 12.99 agency ebook you know Barnes and Noble got almost a third of that uh, if Barnes and Noble is forced to discount those ebooks at to 9.99 the digital list prices you know who knows 19.99 then they're not making any money on it uh, they could be losing money on a lot of those books. So uh, I think Barnes & Noble and, and what's happening with Barnes & Noble right now is kind of the real story of the effects of this case. You know, you're right. And this is actually prompting Barnes & Noble to severely discount some models of the Nook. I mean, they're discounting the tablets in the U.S. They've severely slashed the price on the Simple Touch and the tablets also in the U.K., do you think that with Barnes & Noble slashing the prices in hardware, and I think you can get the entry-level Nook HD now for almost $129. You can get their top-of-the-line uh, model for about $159. So it's within the range of most people's financial ability to actually make a purchase. Do you think with slashing the hardware prices so much, do you think that this encourages people to actually buy into their system? You know, it's it's very hard uh, to understand what's going on inside of that company without really being inside of it. So all we can do at this point is speculate. But what we do know is this. The company released very disappointing holiday results when it came to Nook sales and content sales. And since then, the company has been just slashing prices left and right. I mean, every single week come new announcements of these Barnes & Noble specials. And, and I think the, one of the recent ones was they're extending the Father's Day sale. You know, it's, it hasn't been Father's Day for a while now, but it's still Father's Day if you're at a Barnes & Noble. Huh. Um, and I think that, you know, you can read it a number of ways. I mean, clearly, they're trying to juice sales. Is it because they're getting rid of all this excess inventory they have? Are they, are they getting out of this digital device uh, business. Um, if I had to make a total complete guess, here's what it would be. Probably the leadership is considering getting out of this business. And the order from on high has come down that they need to move a lot of nooks no matter what. And the people that work in sales and marketing and promotions uh, and sort of you know, have their hand on the rudder when it comes to you know, looking at the P&L and looking at inventory and seeing what they need to do, basically have been given the latitude to just sell at whatever prices they, can, they need to to move the, the stuff. And you know, probably, my, and this is again just total speculation, you know, within the C-suite, they are really just seriously considering getting out of this. 
Um, but the people on the ground who are actually working on these things, you know, their understanding is, you know, we're 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 moving on to the next generation of stuff. Um, because I think if you, you know, if you if you've got the leadership basically saying internally, you know, this is a disaster, we need to get out of this. You don't you don't want to tell all of your troops that that's what's happening. Um, you know, you need them to keep on fighting uh, as long as possible. Uh, so you don't completely, you know, lose everything. So I, I think that it's it's possible that Barnes and Noble is is just is getting out of this side of the business, and I think that, that for Nook is is a really bad sign. Um, you know, we've seen that device sales and and content sales are pretty closely linked, and uh, I think if Nook Media thinks that it's going to build a viable uh, business on selling eBooks through apps on other people's devices, I, I don't I don't know if that's going to be the case. Yeah, I mean. The way that I see it is that I I agree, I agree and I think that you don't want to demoralize the troops by saying we're going to get out of the business and just everybody's like you know we only have X number of days before this is all over people will get fired they'll start shedding staff and so on. There's two sort of schools of thought I have. One is that they are going to be announcing some new devices by September and they may just be clearing out stock to have it start being manufactured now because Barnes & Noble traditionally, they start announcing new devices around September-ish. Things are submitted to the FCC before that. Of course, things are being manufactured right now if they are hope to have that September, uh, October release date. My understanding is that they kind of want to get out of the tablet business and it does make sense when the Nook uh, Color first came out there really wasn't a lot of competition in the tablet space at least in the US and and ultimately the UK you didn't have the onslaught of tablets that we see now from Google, Acer, Asus, Microsoft all the top players and Barnes and Nobles found themselves cumulatively with every tablet release that they've done that they've sold less than the device prior. So they had a ton of success with the Nook Color. They released the Nook Tablet. They sold less units ultimately overall than the Nook Color. And then when the Nook HD and HD Plus came out, there was just too much competition out there and you know what it's like when you compete in a tablet space, you compete ultimately on price. And so it's very uneconomically feasible for anybody to really make money on hardware these days. You sell the device as cheap as possible and you hope to make money back through the digital purchases. And this has been Kobo's, Amazon's, and and Barnes & Noble's strategy from the get-go. Kobo remains to be very profitable because they haven't really invested a large portion of their company in tablets. They've mainly focused on the lower-cost e-readers. And so I believe that Barnes & Noble is not going to get out of the business altogether. They probably will continue to release e-ink readers because the manufacturing costs versus how much money they actually make on hardware and device sales, it's high enough to make it profitable for them. But for tablet sales, I don't know how profitable it actually is for Barnes & Noble uh, to do that. Obviously, if we look at each of their quarterly results, all signs point to the hardware sales are very unprofitable, but the actual content, selling ebooks, selling magazines, newspapers, in-app purchases, that remains to be 
not the lost leader the hardware is. Yeah. So, you know, do you have a sense of, um, you know, we know that in the U.S. the shipments of e-readers um, have decreased, have started to, to decline. Um, you know, what's happening worldwide? Because, I, you know, we, we think we see the U.S. and, and e-book purchases, um, the growth in that is slowing a little bit. Um, but what about uh, the rest of the world? You know, is there a growing market in the rest of the world for uh, e-ink devices and, and, you know, engaging through e-books in that way for the next couple of years? I think so. The big market right now is Germany, uh, of all places. And it, there was a bunch of companies that actually came together, such as uh, Deutsche Telekom and uh, a number of uh, bookstores like Thalia. And they actually released an e-ink reader called the Tolino Shine. And yep. th their mandate from day one was, we can't allow the German public to buy things from foreign nationals exclusively because up until that point everyone was just doing business with Amazon and so they've actually within like the four or five months that they've been out their actual sales now are almost on par with Amazon's digital content sales so with new entrants to the market in a quite a short period of time, it can actually shift momentum. And Germany, the dichotomy of that country, is a, it's a very interesting place. People um, there would rather read newspapers, they would rather read physical books as opposed to digital books. And most people like to deal with local German businesses as opposed to depending on you know companies from outside of Germany, mainly because of the sheer amount of local German books that are accessible. But I think that the U.S. market is so saturated that it's very hard to do business there. And that's why like a lot of companies end up bypassing the U.S. and move to other markets. Like the Japan market right now is booming, uh, mainly because of the competition. You have a ton of companies there from Sharp, to Amazon, to Kobo, and all, you know, a lot of local players there, even Sony to a degree, that are really focusing on that market hard. And Asia as a whole is, is a big market for a lot of companies because it really hasn't been saturated until this point. There really hasn't been a lot of device sales there. There hasn't really been a lot of digital sales there. And one interesting thing that I actually learned from talking with Michael Tamblin from Kobo at BEA was how their aggressive strategy has really paid off for them because they really, from day one, never really even focused on the U.S. market. Um, it was only up until recently that they actually sold devices there from their website. Originally, they were selling them through Borders, but they had an exclusive agreement with Borders when Borders went bankrupt that exclusive agreement was actually in bankruptcy court for almost two years that prevented them from making any deals with any new uh, retail chains. And so Kobo was like going into Portugal, into like Brazil, every single country in Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and branching off to almost every major market. And to enter a new market, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. You got to basically school the traditional publishing industry on the virtues of going digital because a lot of these foreign markets have not had um, a vibrant digital book scene to be 
you know, to be honest. And so they have to. Well, there, there's more than that. I mean, it's also the the read. I mean, the publishers, the readers, the retailers. I mean, consider all of the resistance to going digital in the U.S. And you know, if you talk to Kobo, there there are two ways in which they enter a market. One is you know they they put an ebook store in the market, and that's pretty low low budget, low investment. Um, but the other way is they launch a device business in the market. So they're not selling ebooks in 190 plus countries. Um, if you just count the ebook stores, but they're actually selling their devices and sort of have an on-the-ground team talking to publishers, you know, marketing books to readers in, in a, you know, a little over a dozen. Um, but but the, the plan is to more than double that by the end of next year. Um, you know, by contrast, Barnes & Noble has really struggled just to launch in the UK. But you know, you're talking about you know, the international strategy paying off. And you know, from what I hear from Apple, which is in 51 countries or something like that right now, and about a dozen selling devices in, um, and you know, from Amazon, which is now selling books in you know over a hundred countries, um, is that you know these markets are very small, and they're all very different, and the the digital adoption of them is all is all very very early. And in places like Japan and France, which you think you know because they are wealthy countries, um, because they are very technological countries, that that e-reading would take off the same way it, ha it is in the U.S. and the U.K. It hasn't as much. Um, you know there are a lot of companies in there trying to, to help it take off, um, but you know uh, talking to Kobo, Japan is a much more important country for them than it is for other com uh, other companies because they they're now owned by a, a Japanese conglomerate. Um, and he said, you know, it's a struggle in Japan because the culture of the country has a lot of really, really high quality, well packaged print books. People love that. And then the the inexpensive side of it is manga, and manga is you know, you pick up something that costs less than a dollar on your way to work and you pick up another one on the way back and they're disposable and, and that's kind of the area in the US in which e reading has made huge headway. You know, where where has e reading in the US had the most significant impact on the market? It's those middle grade books, it's those mid list books that you would pick up in the supermarket or on the airplane. Um, you know, those are the books that have really suffered in print and have really moved significantly over to digital. So I think that, you know, this international thing is it's really juicy for publishers. Um, it's really, really juicy for retailers and Kobo, you know, as opposed to Barnes and Noble and, and Apple too has done a tremendous amount of international expansion that doesn't talk about as much. Um, they're they're betting on and you know to some extent reaping the rewards on these markets coming to fruition and coming online um, in a way that can be profitable for them. Yeah, I mean it's like they're investing in the country's publishing scene to to get them to go digital to trumpet the virtues of, of a sound digital strategy. And it, some markets are easier than others, obviously, in order for that to actually happen. So one thing since we're talking about Kobo is that they've also been slashing the prices of their device. I saw in the UK they slashed the price of the Kobo Mini to £29. And uh, in Canada and the US now it's now $39. How, how much do you think that price ultimately makes a difference when it comes to actually making that hardware purchase? Yeah, I think that, that there are two ways of looking at this price making a difference for hardware purchase. One is, you know, let's say I'm a consumer and there's something I want for $99 and they say, well, how about we give you 10% off? And I think to myself, that's nice. Okay, maybe I will buy it now. And then there's the something where something is just so cheap 
that it it's like you don't really even have to think about it. And I think that's where the Kobo Mini is in that territory now. Of, you know, $39 for a really nice, fully functional e-reader. And you know, it used to be with, with, with devices that the smaller they got, the more expensive they got because they were very compact. And you know, I think the Mini might almost be the perfect size for me or you know, a lot of other different kinds of readers. And the fact that it's cheaper is, is great. So I think the Kobo Mini has gotten into that territory of, wow, it's just so cheap that it's kind of a no-brainer. Um, but you know, in terms of e-readers, they're not the sexy uh, devices that they once were. So I really do wonder, I think like you, you know, what kind of effect this will have on the marketplace. Um, that said, I think Kobo has really bought into the e-reader as its, its, its tool of choice to going out to market. Um, you know, they've said it publicly uh, many, many times. And you know, the, the last Kobo report, I think they were up almost 150% e-reader sales you know, month over month. Uh, going back the past 12 months or so. And you know, as we know, the e-reader is very much a path to content sales. You, know, you, you don't finish a book on the e-reader and then go to playing Angry Birds or checking your email. You buy another book because um, that's pretty much all you can do on it. Um, so I think that, that Kobo's move here is, is smart. And you know, if the content is profitable, which is the game plan for all of these companies, then getting the device into someone's hand, making sure it's your device and not the competitor's device, I mean, that's got to be the name of the game right now. I agree. And speaking of like content and everything like that, one thing that we haven't talked about, we've talked about the major publishers uh, during the show so far, but we really haven't talked a lot about the indie self-published books, both on uh, Amazon, Apple, all the companies that we've been talking about, including Kobo. We kind of wrote a series of articles uh, this week on the current state of affairs in indie publishing, and um, a literal firestorm, I guess, erupted due to... I saw that. Yeah. How, how are you dealing with that? Well, you, have you left your home? <laughs> I would probably say that the people with pitchforks and flaming torches, they're, they're gone, uh, but okay. the, their residual effect is, uh, is keenly felt, and... Um, what I, I mean, my views are, are very well known. Uh, to sum it up, basically, is that there's too many indie titles being published every month to really keep track of the good ones. If you look at the sales charts, most people look for price points, so like 99 cents to 2.99 and and upwards or so uh, to help filter out books. But ebook discovery, because of the sheer amount of the indie titles being published per month, it's it's getting harder because all the indie titles are side by side in, in every major bookstore along with small, medium, and a large press publishers. And my biggest concern is that there's really no really big way to filter the good from the bad because you have the New York Times bestseller list, the USA Today to help guide you on the best books available, but there's really no indie bestseller list. You know, There's no way to see on a monthly basis what are the best titles available. It's mainly up to the users to browse their ecosystem of choice in the hopes of finding that next great book. And I kind of really feel that ebook discovery on any platform is just being hampered due to the sheer amount of indie titles being produced on a monthly basis. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally feel what you're saying, but uh, I'm going to play devil's advocate here a little bit. I mean, that's like saying, you know, the Internet is junk because you can never find anything because there's so much crap. I mean, you know, maybe today 
if you go onto Amazon, maybe it's a little bit tough to get through some of the indie titles that maybe you don't want to see. I mean, a lot of people probably do want to see them, but some people don't. Um, but there, there are going to be ways, and there always are going to be ways of, of evolving aggregation. And I do think there is a self-published uh, title bestseller list run by um, Galley Cat, maybe. Um, so I do think you, you can check that out. Um, but you know, I think that uh, overall, you know, self-publishing is kind of one of the the neatest things, and, and I did use the word neat um, <laughs> to be happening in book publishing right now. Um, it's really a democratization of of the book publishing world to some degree. I mean, the barriers to entry for publishing a book have just come down almost to the floor. And if you are a uh, somebody who has the dream of being a published author, which you know we know from doing many surveys at Digital Book World of, of authors, self-publishing authors and published authors, you know what their priorities are. They don't do it for the money. I mean, money is a, is one of their priorities, but one of their main priorities is to fulfill this lifelong dream of of being a published author. You know, if you get rejected by agents and publishers, you can now do that. So, you know, on the user end, you looking for books, I can I could see how that would be annoying. Um, but I got to take the opposite view here. I think it's kind of a great thing. And and just for the record, I mean, I think I've only actually purchased one or two indie titles uh, ever. So I guess you probably wouldn't call me, you know, the the, the target audience hmm. for for indie authors. Although, you know, of course, that could change depending on the book. Um, but I don't have a problem you know, with them being around. And I kind of just accept as a person of the web that you're going to have to wade through a lot of stuff that you don't want to for one reason or another. And you know, maybe your feelings will be uh, felt by others, and somebody will come up with a really, really good way of filtering. Yeah, and I think Amazon does a good job in some respects of filtering with, uh, say, Kindle Singles, where it's done through a vetted editorial process so it's very hard to actually get included in Kindle singles and Kindle singles it's not really reserved for the biggest names of course Stephen King has done a Kindle single uh, a large uh, a fair number of journalists have capitalized on current trends and as soon as a, a news item is popular for maybe a week they'll pump out a Kindle single to take advantage of that and, and that's solid because there's an editorial process and uh, Kindle Worlds I believe is going to have a bit of an editorial process too although it's not really open to the public yet and so I, I kind of dig the fact that Amazon's starting to look at titles submitted to them through indie authors and actually approve or disapprove them. It doesn't really seem with self-publishing that there's really any mechanisms in place to filter the good from the bad. And I know that's a totally subjective term, but there's really no mechanisms in place. And I believe that if nothing changes, within like a few years, you're going to have for every one trade title coming out, you're going to have like 100 indie titles and there's just going to be so many books there that how do you keep track of them all? And one of my biggest concerns is that, of course, you can look at ratings. You can look at how many people purchased the book. The, the more five-star ratings a book has, it's usually an indication of quality. But John Locke wrote a book on how he got to sell a million Kindle eBooks and get fairly rich in the process and he said that he was paying for reviews he was paying for five star ratings he was paying people to digitally download his book and so if you base your next book on say the first two pages of Amazon's 
top new books and how many of those books have actually gamed the system in order to get that positioning uh, within Amazon. Timothy Ferris um, didn't buy reviews, but he gave a thousand of his books away before it ever caved out and kind of encouraged people, if you like the book, leave an Amazon review. So on the first day that his book came out, he had close to about 600 people give it a five-star rating and leave, you know, reviews. Where do you draw the line when it comes yeah. to, what, you know? Yeah, Amazon said that they cleaned a lot of that fake review stuff up. I mean, they've gotten pretty strict reviews now, or rules around around the reviews now, but I think it's going to be a battle that's always going to be fought. I mean, you know, there are going to be more uh, titles out there. And hey, let's face it, before indie publishing came around, you still had to wade through a lot of crap to find good stuff to read. I mean, there's always been bad stuff out there by, by professional publishers. Um, you know, and, and the, the democratization of publishing has definitely contributed to the numbers in a, big, in a big, big way. I mean, maybe it was that one out of every 100 or 200 books published was really good, and now it's one out of every 500 books published. Um, but, and, and that makes it way harder. But I think, you know, maybe the remedy for this, and this is a problem I think that indie authors themselves have identified is, you know, you don't see a lot of professional reviews of indie titles. Um, you know, Michiku Kakutani, the um, book reviewer for The New Yorker, made waves last year when she put an indie title on her 10 best of the year list. I mean, that was, that was huge, I think, for the indie author community to see that, you know, such a, a venerable book reviewer who's you know, known for being fairly tough um, would put an indie title on the list. Um, you know, the publisher, I think, was listed as just self-published, which was, was really new for that list. Um, but, but, you know, I've been reading about how uh, indie authors, even when they sign big publishing contracts or they have huge amounts of sales, you know, they're just not getting the professional reviews. And maybe that's kind of the filtration method of today that we're thinking of. Maybe tomorrow there's some better, more clever way to, to wade through the even larger amount of stuff. Uh, but maybe today the, the remedy is, you know, we should try to encourage professional reviewers to take an interest in taking a look at some of the better indie titles and seeing if they can elevate them. But I think there's something else there that that has really been a problem, I think, for indie authors and book publishers, you know, from online retail, which is that, okay, sure, you, you see a book on the bestseller list, and then it starts getting reviews, and then all of a sudden it's at the top of everything, and everyone's talking about it on Twitter. You know, online book discoveries become like an echo chamber. Um, it's, there isn't as much of a, you know, you walk into a bookstore and you just kind of browse and see which covers catch your eye. It's more like, what are all my friends reading? What do I see on Twitter everywhere? What's at the top of the Amazon list? Okay, I'll just go buy that and then I'll leave another, you know, three or four or five star review and that, that contributes to the process. You know, I wonder um, if that, that's certainly not a problem for readers. You know, readers don't care. They just want to read good books. But for publishers and authors who want to get their new stuff discovered, uh, that's got to be very worrying. It's true. Uh, one thing that I want to talk about is something that actually broke fairly recently. It was a new digital rights management encryption system from a company in Germany. And yeah. a lot of people have been talking about this. It's called uh, SIDIM, so S-I-D-I-M. And mm -hmm. it's the premise of it is that for every copy that's shared, it, it both has a hidden digital watermark, but it actually changes the text within the book. So if, you, if I pirate a copy, my copy is different from your pirated copy, and it's that easy to track back who's actually sharing the book illegally. What do you think about this? Well, I wonder, you know, I don't know, too, I read the articles as well, and I didn't really dive deeply into the technology, but I wonder, you know, I think the holy grail for DRM, 
for publishers, for authors, for readers, for everybody, is something that will truly prevent the bad guys from doing bad things, but allow the good guys to do the reasonable things that they want to do. Like, if I have you know, my book that I bought, I want to be able to read it anywhere, or let a friend borrow it, or do all the things I can do with normal books. I think any reasonable person you know, who's a reader would agree that that's a pretty reasonable request. You know, if I buy a book, I should be able to use it the way I've always used books. Um, you know, publishers may not agree. You know, you may not agree. I may not agree. But I think that's a reasonable thing. So my question is, how does this DRM work in terms of allowing me to share the book with myself? You know, on different platforms, um, or let a friend borrow it, or or something like that. I mean, is is it just scrambles the text anytime I make a copy of any sort, or or do anything with it? Because if that's the case, then I don't really see how it's any better or novel or different than other kinds of DRM, unless it can truly, truly prevent a dedicated pirate from unlocking and pirating the book, which, so far as I know, that hasn't been invented yet. Yeah, I think that it's the average person now has a smartphone, they have a tablet, they have their PC at home, they have their laptop, they have many devices, and you could, a lot of the statistics from Pew and uh, all those uh, research firms are saying that, you know, most people now have a tablet, they have a smartphone, you know, they want to read the book on the go on their phone, and then when they are in bed at night, they want to read it on their tablet. And they don't, a lot of people are put off by the fact that if I buy a book legitimately, if I have a BlackBerry phone and I have a, an iPad... Who has a BlackBerry phone, though? I don't think anybody has those anymore. Um, I have one. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Michael. I'm sorry. It's okay. I think in the U.S. or worldwide, we're down to like 2% market share on that, but that's probably... Another story. Yeah, but I mean, I want to load that book through Windows Explorer on my phone, something very easy, and, and read it and then continue reading it on my iPad. Currently, I can't do that. I need Adobe Digital Editions. I need complicated programs that I need to verify that, yes, I've purchased this book and copy it over, but then there's the software limitations of Android or Windows Phones 8 or any of these things that make transferring a book between devices that may not have an official app. So say I buy a book from Amazon, doesn't have an official BlackBerry app, I can't read it on my BlackBerry, but I could load it into a third-party Indie-rific uh, app, but it doesn't really work. And so I'm a huge fan of digital watermarking. I really think that Pottermore did an amazing job with the only way that they you know, protected their assets was through a digital watermark. And very non-obtrusive. You can share it with friends. You could load it on any device that you want. You don't need any kind of fancy uh, programs to do that. It's simply a watermarked file. That's If it makes it on a greater internet, it's very easy to track back who was the original purchaser, how exactly did it get out, how many copies are out right now. I really dig that. And I think that there's something maybe to be said for invisible watermarks that you know, phone home maybe every once in a while to let people know how many of these are actually in circulation. I don't know if this new German DRM will catch on because if text get, starts getting obfuscated, it's pretty difficult. You know, if I lend you my book as I would always lend out my physical books, your book experience may not make sense because things may be changed on a text level. So it's debatable whether this catches on, but at least people are thinking about new forms of digital rights management. 
Yeah, I mean, it's clearly an issue that the industry is really worried about. I was just at the World Creator Summit conference in uh, Washington, D.C., and they, you know, the World Creator Summit is, is artists and creators and license holders, and they're extremely concerned with digital piracy. And, you know, for music and, and movies and other kinds of visual content, you know, piracy is an extremely, extremely tough problem that probably bleeds the, those industries of a lot more uh, revenue and those artists and those creators of a lot more revenue than, than in book publishing. So, you know, I, I do think it's encouraging to see a lot of people attacking this problem, but I don't think we've hit on the solution uh, that really satisfies all parties yet, and I'm not sure we ever will. It, it'll definitely take some time. Um, that's my take on it. So finally, you actually ran at Digital Book World a Women in Book publishing event. And I believe that friend of both of our companies, uh, Deborah Forte, actually spoke on it. Regale me with tales of how that went. Oh, yeah. It was fantastic. So the event was uh, Women in Book Publishing. It was a career sort of panel uh, with four very accomplished um, and interesting uh, women who have, have risen very, very high in their own companies and giving advice and telling stories. And we had sort of a little cocktail before and after. So the attendees, who were mostly young women uh, in book publishing sort of earlier in their careers, um, could, could mingle with each other and, and with the, the, um, the panelists. So the panelists were Deborah Forte, who is the president of Scholastic Media, which is, you know, a very, very large piece of uh, a large publicly traded company in the U.S. You know, they, they produce The Hunger Games, for instance. Um, you know, Clifford the Big Red Dog, I think that probably says it all, but they have dozens of properties that we all know from our childhood. Um, then there was uh, Angela Trebelli, the chief marketing officer of HarperCollins. Um, there was Sara Domville, who's the, one of the presidents of FNW Media, which is you know, my own company, Digital Book World's run by FNW Media. And last, we had Megan Tingley, who is the executive vice president and publisher at Little Brown, which is, I believe, if not the largest, one of the largest divisions of uh, Hachette, which is one of the larger publishers in the world. And, you know, I tried to put together a group of, you know, people who have different career paths and come from different places and sort of work in different areas, but all kind of made it to the top. So, you know, Deborah Forte, for, for the past 20 years, she, I don't think she would even classify herself as in book publishing. You know, she's been in media. She's won an Oscar. She's won several Emmys. She, they've produced TV and movies and, and computer games and, and digital stuff for, for 20 years. Um, and, you know, she came through this sort of like, you know, let's create new businesses side of things. Uh, and she has really interesting stories to tell about her coming up. And then Angela Trevelli, a year ago, she wasn't even in the book publishing industry. She came from uh, NYC and Co., which is a public-private partnership to promote New York City tourism. She was working with the Bloomberg administration. Before that, she worked in magazines at, at MX Publishing and Condé Nast. Um, you know, Sara Domville came up through, you know, a little bit more of a traditional background, you know, various publishing companies here and there working in sort of licensing and rights management and, and on the sell side of a lot of things. And she had some fantastic stories to tell about, you know, being a part of mergers and acquisitions and, you know, telling the audience really, you know, women sometimes as a group seem to, you know, be afraid of numbers or have trouble or, or, or are sort of afraid of, of controlling the P&L. And she said, don't, don't have that attitude. Uh, if you want to rise uh, in your career, you've got to work with, with the P&L, which is, you know, of course, the profit and loss sheet, you know, the, the thing all of your business is based on. And you've got to be familiar with talking about it and you've got to work really hard at it. And you know what? Uh, as, as a guy who works with uh, the P&L, 
it's hard. <laughs> it is hard, and it is scary. And I think that's good advice for anybody that you can't you can't let that bother you. And then uh, Megan Tingley um, came up through the editorial side, and she's probably best known for the editor who did Twilight, the Twilight series, which is I believe has sold over a hundred million copies now, and of course has been made into the very famous movies and you know vampires and werewolves. I think Twilight really capitalized on the whole vampire thing better than anything else by far. Um, so she she came out to the editorial side, and, and uh, her career is a story of working really, really hard and just, you know, clawing your way up the ladder, but also a story of the best way to advance your career is do good work. Um, you know, you can do all the right stuff in terms of networking and having a mentor and making sure that you work with the P&L and making sure you pick up the right skills, but at the end of the day, the thing that's really, really going to help you the most or hurt you the most is, is the quality of the work you do. Um, and so, uh, you know, it was just an uplifting event. We, we had over an hour of talking. I'm only, uh, you know, sad that it couldn't have lasted longer. And at the end, the 80 or so people that we had, you know, clapped and, and literally cheered uh, for some of the stories that, that these executives told. And then we also had an audience of about 60 or so virtually uh, using uh, the Shindig platform. And we took a, a, a question from the virtual audience, you know, just to prove that we're appropriately digital. I mean, we are a digital book world after all. Well, it sounded like it was a fine event. Do you have any uh, other things coming up in the next little while? Oh, you know, Michael, we're always working on uh. stuff. We're, we're planning a follow-up event to this event that will happen sometime in the August to October time frame, and that's going to be um, very different, but we're going to do it also in partnership with the um, the Association of American Publishers Young to Publishing Group, and it's going to probably be me, uh, Mike Shatskin from Ideological Company and Michael Cater from Publishers Lunch, uh, sort of doing a little talk about what's happening in book publishing. Maybe just a little moderated, you know, panel discussion about the latest news and developments in the industry. Um, you know, for some of the younger people, because you know what what we do, and I'm going to actually really highlight here Shatskin and, and Cater what they do in putting together the DBW program for January is you know they are bringing together we have 50 or so people on our conference council we've got all the people at DBW who are thinking about this stuff all the time and we bring our attendees you know the, the latest intel the best data the latest insights into what's going on in digital books and, and publishing and some of these uh, early career folks at the AAP's young to publishing group you know they can't go it's a, it's an expensive ticket. It's it's for senior level folks, and um, you know sometimes their boss won't pay for them to go, or they won't you know it's too expensive for them to go. So we want to bring it to them a little bit, and just show them what it's all about. So we've got that coming up, and you know I'm just looking forward to a summer where I I might just get a chance to breathe a little bit. Mm, How about all, you? What, what do you what do you got planned in the near future? Well, going to Chicago next week for the, oh, the ALA. Yep, for ALA 13. So get a sense on this, some of the more emerging trends in libraries. I know Overdrive is uh, showcasing a new digital terminal that will allow libraries to actually sell ebooks directly within uh, the institution. They showed something similarly off at CES this year, which really gives um, retailers, um, any company that basically has a red box, you know, available. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of like their digital equivalent of the red box where you could make a digital purchase and have it transferred automatically to any device and you know the retailer earns I think like a crazy commission of like 40 or 50 percent or so um, it's basically the best ebook commission in the business that they offer and so I'm kind of interesting to see like what they'll do for libraries and kind of get my finger on the pulse of what are the big um, 
you know, what are the big things in, in that are shifted in, in libraries? How is digital adoption rate increased? So it'll be very interesting to spend two or three days there uh, in Chicago um, talking with Maureen Sullivan, who is the president of the American Library Association, but also talking to various international attendees uh, from all over the world to see how their local markets have adapted to digital books and libraries and how much of a presence do they actually have, say, in the UK or Europe or Japan or Australia. A lot of statistics don't really come out that often in terms of what is the digital adoption rate in Japan or, or Canada. Things like that aren't really talked about that often. So I really hope to be able to get some good data from this event to kind of bring everyone up to speed on what exactly is happening in the library industry right now when it comes to digital. So I'm very excited about that. Well, I look forward to reading it. All right. So I'd like to thank uh, Jeremy Greenfield for joining me today uh, from Digital Book World. Uh, you're listening to the Good E-Reader Radio Show. My name is Michael, and everybody take care. <laughs>